Holy Father, thank you for waking us up this morning and bringing us here by your grace. Thank you for sending your Son to redeem us. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to apply that redemption to your elect. And now I pray for this service. I pray, Father, that you will give me strength. If there was ever a time that I needed the Holy Spirit, it will be this morning. So I pray, Father, for your Holy Spirit to empower me, to uplift me. Wherever I am weak, make me strong. Lord, I pray for your people, your saints who have come this morning to feast on your word. I pray that you will speak to them through me this morning. May I, Lord, be a messenger of great news to your people. Give them ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts willing and minds alert to receive your word, Lord. May this day be of some improvement for the rest of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> if you have a Bible, you can turn to the prophecy of Malachi. Again, it's the last book of the Old Testament. I'm going to say this one last time. If you go to Matthew and you just scroll back a couple pages, you will find yourself in Malachi. You will find yourself in Malachi. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 says this. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. As we open up the first chapter of the Old Testament, the first chapter of the whole Bible, we see the creation of the world. And immediately, we are drawn to this theme of darkness and light. Everything in the beginning was as dark as night. And as soon as God said, let there be light, everything that was dark became light. God called the light good. He saw that it was good. And as we move along in the opening chapters of Genesis, we see God creates man and woman, Adam and Eve, were to dwell in the light that God created. Externally, they walked uh, with God in that light. And internally, they had true light, as they were righteous and holy in God's eyes. But tragically, Adam and Eve chose darkness over light. They chose to listen to the prince of darkness rather than the God of light. Paul, commenting on the fall in Romans 5.12, says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Because of Adam's sin, all, our, all of humanity is cursed. We are separated from holy God. True light no longer dwells within us. The true light of God no longer shines his face upon us. Darkness spread and penetrated the world the moment Adam sinned. As a result, Proverbs 4.19 says, The way of the wicked is like darkness, and they do not, and, and they do not know over what they stumble. John 3.19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world, Jesus Christ. And men love the darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. 
you, me, our children, the rest of humanity are born in darkness. We love our darkness and we remain in darkness because we are born in Adam. We love our sin. But in the midst of Adam's fall, a small flash of light is shown. God says to the serpent, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the midst of darkness, God once again displays his perfect light, his perfect plan of redemption. God promises one who will come and deliver a death blow to the serpent's head. The promised seed from the woman will come and restore every single thing that Adam lost. God promises the covenant of grace. And in this covenant, the Father, through the Son, will glorify himself while bringing many sons to glory. In Christ, in Christ, in this promised seed, light will triumph over darkness. And this light... This promised seed, this chosen Messiah is the fuel that drives the Old Testament towards hope and brighter days. Balaam looked toward this day in Numbers 24 as he said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. And listen to his words here. A star shall come out of Jacob. A bright light shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Isaiah looked toward this day, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. And in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made the glorious the way of the sea and beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And hear this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep dark darkness, on them a light has shone. That that gives me even chills saying that. This light was to, that was to come is what gave all the Old Testament saints hope as they patiently waited for the Messiah to arrive. However, in light of such hope and anticipation, the tragedy of the Old Testament is Israel often rejected that light. God sent prophet after prophet to speak light to Israel, and time and time after again, Israel chose darkness over light. As we come to the last book of the Old Testament, God sends one last prophet to speak light to these Israelites one last time. Malachi, often known as the evening star of the prophets, will bring light to Israel before 400 years of darkness. As you remember from our studies of the book of Malachi, at the current time of Israel's history, they themselves are living in darkness. Their nation isn't what it used to be. The, the glory of old Israel hasn't come, hasn't become a reality. They themselves are practicing darkness, if you remember. They are bringing lame and sick sacrifices to the Lord. They are robbing God in a tithe. They are divorcing their wives and marrying outside of the covenant. They are even in questioning who God is. They are questioning the love of God, the faithfulness of God, the justice of God, the holiness of God. Israel is not obeying nor loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
Yet, in spite of Israel's rebellion, in spite of the current darkness that surrounds the nation of Israel, God reaffirms a promise that he made long ago. Beyond the dust of the Old Testament, Malachi shines a bright light upon God's faithful promises of the Old Testament age and speaks in the last verses of the Old Testament scriptures of this light that will soon rise from the darkness. This morning we have the privilege to look at the last words of the Old Testament that predicts and promises our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's stand. Malachi chapter 3, and we'll be reading from verse 16 on to the rest of the book. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him. And those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts and father turn the hearts of fathers to the children to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction that is the word of the Lord you may be seated this morning I have two points I would like for you to consider and that will help us guide our, our way through the last Verses of the prophecy of Malachi. The first point is the light that will bring destruction. The light that will bring destruction. And the second point, the light that will bring healing. The light that will bring healing. One light will come. One sun will rise. But we'll have two different purposes in mind. One will bring destruction, and one will bring healing. Let's look at the first point, and that is the light that will bring <coughs> destruction. Uh, long ago, very long ago, and I'm not, I don't even know if Pastor remembers this, but he was there with me on this day. I can remember when I was a child, and I was standing outside of uh, Shakey's Pizza here on Niles. If you guys remember, that was Shakey's Pizza. Or maybe with the Sharkies, I don't know. Um, and I can remember in the sky, there was a light that kept going higher and higher while also getting bigger and bigger. Do you remember that? And I can remember everyone uh, gathered outside 
And I mean, literally, it seemed like all of the east side was outside looking at this light that was in the sky. Everyone that was in the stores, everyone that was in Long's Drug Store and, and all that, came outside to look at this light that was in the sky that was, that was going higher, but also getting bigger and bigger. And in my head, I can only think of one thing. Jesus is back. <laughs> I, that, that was the only thing that, that's the only conclusion that I came to that, oh my gosh, Jesus is here. Like, he's here, he's here right now, he's coming back, and he's going to wipe us all out. And, and I was waiting for, uh, for me to vanish. I was looking at my brother and waiting for him to vanish and his clothes to be just there on the floor, uh, because of, uh, my left behind, um, tradition. And, um, I, I, can re- I can remember saying in my head, Jesus, I love you, and Jesus, save me. You know, trying, trying my best to make myself right before God, you know, um, and you've all been there. But little did I know that light that was in the sky was a missile that was fired as an experiment. It, it wasn't really Jesus. He didn't really come back. Um, but my point is this. Have you ever considered what Jesus' second coming will be like? Have you ever imagined what that great day will be like? For me, I was terrified because I was an Adam. But for some, many don't contemplate what that day will truly be like. I think many Christians at times, when they think about the second coming of Christ... They get too caught up in the timing of Jesus' return. Will it be before the tribulation, during the tribulation, after the tribulation? And ignore the manner in which he will return. What actually will happen at Christ's second coming? Not necessarily the timing, but what will happen when he returns? Well, we find our answer in the last verses of the last book of the Old Testament. God has been for three chapters rebuking these Israelites of their unfaithfulness. In chapter 1, he rebukes Israel of their lack of reverence of him. He says in verse 6, a son honors his father and his servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Sons honor fathers. Well, how much more is the creature to honor their creator? He says in verse 8, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? How oftentimes are we guilty of that? We give our, manager, our managers and, and the people whom we love most dearly a greater gifts than, than we do to God. The gift being ourselves, a, a sacrifice of ourself. In chapter 2, God rebukes the priesthood. He says in verse 2 of chapter 2, If you will not listen, I will not take, and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. He goes on to rebuke their, un, their uh, covenant unfaithfulness. But in Israel's mind, Backtrack and God, we know that God is angry. That God is, um, and if I can use human terms to describe God, He is very uh, upset with Israel and how they are dealing with Him. But in Israel's mind, it seems like God is just whining. 
In Israel's mind, they're doing what they ought to be doing. We rebuilt the temple. We reinstituted the priesthood. We brought the sacrifices to the altar. We brought the tithe into the storehouse. We for so long have been waiting patiently for you to show up, God. Israel's anticipation for God to restore the land of Israel has come, as they have come out of exile, has forced them to view God as a cold, unjust, and evil deity. So they complain and talk back to God's charges. How have you loved us, God? How have we despised your name, God? How have we polluted you? How have we wearied you? Now we can all shake our heads and say, oh, Israel. But mind you, friends, this is a picture of ourselves. This is who we are. How often have we complained to God and and said, God doesn't love us. When we look at our external um, situations and circumstances, when we see all people prospering around us, how often do we say, wow, God's unjust. The wicked prosper and the ones who are faithful and righteous are the ones who are not doing so good. Malachi is a wonderful book for us to read time and time again because it's a picture of who we are or who we can be like. We can very well be like Israel, and many times we are like Israel, even us being in Christ. But here we have in the last verses of the last chapter, the last book of the Old Testament, God is going to issue a warning to these Israelites. If you continue to act, if you continue to think like that, if you continue to rebel against me, then something will come that will be for your destruction. In these last verses of Malachi, God tells this rebellious and prideful people, a day is coming when you will be destroyed if you keep on going the way you're going. Israel is not mindful of the second coming. Mind you, they're waiting for the first coming. Right? But look at, chapter, look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them nor root nor branch. In verse 5, God calls this day the great day and awesome day of the Lord. But we have to ask, what is this day of the Lord? What does this day consist of? The phrase, the day of the Lord, is used 19 times in the Old Testament. And this phrase, the day of the Lord, often conveys a sense of nearness and expectation. Isaiah says in Isaiah 13:6, Hail, for the day of the Lord is near. Ezekiel says in chapter 30, verse 3, For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. Joel 2.1 Let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. As we come to the fourth chapter of Malachi, the day of the Lord refers to that divine judgment that will take place at the end of the age. This day will be unlike any other day when the Son of God will come and judge all those who are wicked and evil. I myself had a small glimpse of what that experience will be like when I was a child. And my gosh, 
was I not scared that day? Can you imagine when that day actually comes about? Malachi says concerning this day in chapter 3, verse 2, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? So many people, like many atheists, say, Well, I'm going to stand before God at the last day. I'm going to, I'm going to give God a piece of my mind. Malachi says, No, you're not. No one can endure this day. No one can stand when he appears. No one can stand in his presence on this day. God is warning these Israelites that this great day is coming. And notice how God describes the current condition of that day. And and what's happening right now? How is that day currently being prepared? What does it look like? The day is coming burning like an oven. When all the arrogant and evildoers will be like stubble, stubble. God's divine wrath is burning like a fire burns in the oven. His long suffering and patience is soon coming to an end. And the recipients of such justice and wrath won't be all arrogant and evildoers. All those who do not fear the Lord, all the ungodly in Israel will burn like a furnace. In this oven, nobody and nothing connected with unrighteousness will be spared. All the people who have wearied the Lord, all the people who despise the Lord's name, all the people who snort at the name of God, all the people who do not give God glory, all the sorcerers, adulterers, all those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and sojourners, they will be judged on that day. They will burn in this oven. This judgment will not be to refine and purify, as Malachi says in chapter 3, verse 2, but it will be to consume and destroy. This day that will come will bring light to the nations, yet this, night is, this light is, is one of heat and destruction. And God has given us a foretaste of this day throughout history. You can think of the great flood during the days of Noah. You can think of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah during Abraham's time. You can think of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Friends, those days were indeed horrific in their own right, yet they will not hold a candle to the great day of the Lord. God says this great day is coming and is burning like an oven. And look what he also says in verse 1, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. That is one of the most horrific images and verses in all of Scripture. The point is this. As wood keeps the fire burning, evildoers and wicked men will keep God's wrath inflamed. They will be the wood for God's wrath. They will keep God's wrath inflamed. The unrighteous who do not fear the Lord's will be the ones who keep the fire burning. And look what God says at the end of verse 1. The day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. This day will be the end of the wicked entirely. But what does it mean that the fire that God brings will leave them neither root nor branch? What does that mean? Listen to this commentary of a man who has no root or branch in Job 18. His roots dry up beneath and his, ratchet and his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from the light into darkness and driven out of the world. 
And hear this. He has no progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. That's what it means to leave a man neither root nor branch. You will have no lineage behind you. you your name will be wiped off the map completely. You won't even be a memory. That, that's what it means. None will survive. No lineage will be left. Total annihilation. Jonathan Edwards said, The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, the justice bends the arrow at your heart. God's, God's justice and his wrath is at all the hearts of evildoers. And the only reason why they have not been consumed yet, the only reason why they have not been hit by that arrow of justice and wrath is because God is long patient and long suffering. Wicked friends, this, this day of the Lord's second coming will be the end of the wicked. God's wrath and justice is enduring much long safe suffering and patience, but, but don't think that it will last forever. That's why, that's why we read, today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week, not yesterday, not ten years from now, but today. Because a day of destruction is coming. This light of fire and destruction will be Israel's fate if they do not heed to God's warnings and friends, this is all of our fate if we don't place our faith in Christ alone. This is our fate in Adam. Friends, in Adam we walk in darkness. We love darkness. And one day light will be shined upon us. But rather than heal us, it is going to consume us. It is going to inflame us. You will not be able to escape Young person, old person, middle-aged person. You will not be able to escape this day of the Lord. There will be no hole where you can hide yourself in. There will be no amount of distance where you can run to survive. You might say, well, I've placed my faith in Christ. I'm here in church. I go to prayer. I'm involved in the church, so I'll be fine. But friends, don't be so blind. Don't be so naive. Haven't you learned by now through our study of the book of Malachi, God cares more about your heart then your external religious practices, then your external worship. If it's not coming from a sincere heart, from a sincere place, then don't even do it at all. God says, shut the doors of the temple. Don't even come. Don't even offer yourself, if, don't even offer yourself a sacrifice of praise if you are not going to give me what I am rightly due. Israel is a perfect picture of who we are and who we can be. Israel had all the external religious practices marked off, yet they forgot to check their heart. They had the prophets. They had the law. They had the covenant. They had everything going for them. We as well. We have elders. We have members of the church. We have a Bible. Some of us hear the gospel regularly. But, oh, how, 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 how often do we take those things for granted? And we just mark those things off in our checkbook. But we never mark off our heart. We can be like Israel. And friends, if that is you, then this day that is coming will be for you. It it will destroy you rather than heal you. Israel snorted at the thought of going to the temple. (laughs) i got to go to the temple again. i got to offer up my, my lamb, my goat. 
How often are we like that? Every Lord's Day Sabbath, every Wednesday night service, when we have to go to prayer. <sighs> Here we go again. Let's, let's, let's go. Let's get the kids ready. Friends, if, you, if, if that is your heart posture and your attitude when you come to church, before you even come to church, don't even come at all. Israel brought the lame and sick sacrifices to God. How often do we not offer ourselves, the best of ourselves to God? Israel said, oh, don't take that lamb. Don't take that goat. That's a, that's a pure and healthy one. Bring your lame one. Bring your sick one. How often times are we like that? Well, God can have only this one hour of my day. And the rest of the day can be devoted to playing games, being on apps, talking on the phone. We need to offer ourselves the best of ourselves to God. Don't give this world the best of you. Give to God the best of who you are. Israel was unfaithful to their wives and chose to marry pagan women. Friends, how often are we unfaithful to God by giving more of our time and our physical body to worldly pagan idols? And you can just name them. Television, Facebook, uh, various things in the news and be consumed by them. When their situation wasn't looking so good, Israel questioned God's Love, friends, God forbid, we will never question God's unchanging love. Yes, you can place your faith in Christ, and, and, and that, is the fir- that is the only first, last step you need to do. But however, is your life living proof that you have? Israel believed in God. Israel had right theology. Yet their lives and their hearts said otherwise. My point is this, to all of us, even myself, wake up. For the Lord is coming, and if you are not ready, you will burn like stubble. Wake up, Christian. If you've been dipping in and out of sin, repent and turn to God. Malachi 3.7, God says, return to me, and I will return to you. Job 22.23 says, if you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. Repent and turn to God. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Friends, this is the first point of the sermon that we have to take heed to. No matter if you are a newborn Christian, no matter if you've been saved for 30 years, a day is coming that is unlike any other. Are you ready for that day? Christ is coming. The light of fire and the light of fire that he brings is coming for those who love darkness. It will be a light that will consume the wicked men who love darkness and ultimately will destroy them. It will be a light that will consume them, that will wipe them off the face of the map. However, but God... For those who love God, for those who fear God, there is a light that is coming for you. A light that comes will be one of destruction for the wicked. But there will also be a light that comes that will heal you, both spiritually and physically. The same light that brings wrath will be the same light that brings joy. And this light that comes will not destroy you, saint, but will heal you. Let's consider our last point, which is the light that brings, that will bring healing. 
the light that will bring healing. On the great day of the Lord, the wicked and arrogant will be judged. Christ will expose their evil deeds. And this day will be a day unlike any other in history. But we have to ask, what will happen to those who are faithful and righteous? What will happen to those who truly love the Lord and who truly offer themselves up as a sacrifice of praise and who truly glorify God in all things that they do? What will happen to us? Let's look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed him. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In that day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Glory be to God. Apparently there were some in Malachi's day who trusted in God's promises. Some who kept the Lord's name holy and feared him. This whole time we'll be speaking about people who have not been keeping the Lord's name holy and who haven't been worshiping God and giving God the glory that they ought to give to him. But what we see in these verses are there is there are people there in Malachi's day who truly are serving God, who are truly worshiping God. Yes, the dominant view of of God in Malachi's day was one of anger and bitterness, but God always preserves for himself a remnant. Always. God always, in the midst of darkness, preserves for himself a little batch of light. Again, verse 16 says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and, the book, and a book of remembrance was written before him, and those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So we... We just got done talking about, last week, talking about um, God's unchanging nature and who God is. But we have to ask, why would a book of remembrance be needed for God? Well, God doesn't need a book of remembrance. In God's infinite knowledge, of course, he does not need a book, uh, a, a, need a book written to record the deeds of men in, in order for him to keep track of who's doing good and who's doing bad. God knows, Right? However, in these verses, God, once again, is speaking to these Israelites in ways that they can understand. He's speaking to us in ways that we can understand. He's using a metaphor to help the remnant of Israel, those ones who are truly being faithful and, and, and honest to God, better understand that their faithfulness is not going unnoticed. That this group... This little, this little group who, who are worshiping and glorifying God and all the things that they do, they're being reminded that what they are doing is not going unnoticed. But God is, God sees their faithfulness. As Malachi presented God's words to the people, they would have understood what a book of remembrance represented. The kings of Persia kept such books and records of those who had rendered service to the king that the servants might be rewarded. So from, his, from a history standpoint, they knew what a book of record, a book of remembrance was. Israel knew exactly what this book of remembrance meant. Those who fear the Lord, those who glorify the Lord and love the Lord will be the ones whose name is written in the book of remembrance. Friends, your loyalty to God does not go unnoticed or unrewarded. 
Matthew 10.42, Jesus says, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, hear this, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The implication is this. What is done on earth is forever recorded in heaven. The book of remembrance is simply a concept that God used to encourage his faithful ones that their love and service for him was appreciated. It is his promise that when his judgment comes against those who reject him, he knows his own and he will preserve them. Again, the Lord doesn't need a book of remembrance. He doesn't need a book to help him remember all of our good deeds but it is to say that God is deeply concerned with the hearts that belong to him. God is not unmindful of those who are righteous and those who uh, who, who fear him. And for those whose name is written in the book, God calls you in verse 17 his own treasured possession. His own treasured possession. And this is not not in my notes, but there's, there's a transition that's happening here. In the very last book of Malachi, when God says, those who fear me will be my treasured possession, that's language that was used in Deuteronomy 7 when God speaks of Israel as his treasured possession. What's happening here? There is an Israel inside of Israel. There is a true Israel. Their true Israel is amongst the physical Israel. Spiritual Israel is amongst the physical Israel. So what does this mean for our day to day, in our day? If you have placed your faith in Christ, if you fear the Lord, if you, if you honor him and glorify him and love him, then you are true Israel. You are the true remnant of God. You are the spiritual seed of Abraham. You are part of that olive tree. Verse 17 says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. What a great verse this is. And especially in our context in the book of Malachi, this, this verse alone, this one verse brought much needed hope and joy to those in Israel who truly love the Lord. I mean, think about, think about Israel in the time of Malachi's day. In a time when Israel as a nation was on the decline, pagan nations were prospering all around, with the majority of Israel accusing God of injustice, God reminds those who love him to remain faithful. Remain faithful. To continue to have faith in the promised Messiah that's to come. This has great benefit and it speaks to us even in our day. When we see this world on the decline, America, the what going the way it's going, friends, remain faithful. We watch CNN, we watch NBC, we watch all, these, all these news stations and all the horrific things that are happening in this world and in America. Saints, remain faithful. Remain faithful. On this day of the Lord, the wicked will be thrown in the oven to burn and the righteous will be spared. On the day of judgment, those who trust in God and love God with all their hearts, minds, souls, and strength will be treated as beloved children. 
Again, verse 1 of chapter 4. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And immediately after this verse of judgment, some of the most soothing and comforting language in all of Scripture is used. Look at verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. The sun of righteousness, that is the light that will come. And that sun that, that comes, that sun that rises, will bring one light, but will have a dual purpose. It will destroy the wicked, but it will heal the righteous. Malachi, or Micah 7.8 says, and one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. This verse speaks of the first and second coming of Christ. You can say when, 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 when God says the sun of righteousness will rise, it has a dual meaning. It speaks of the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. When Christ first appeared, the righteous that lived in darkness was comforted by the light of the world. Remember John 9. Oh, John chapter 1, verse 9 through 13, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were not born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The light came into the world. Many rejected that light because they loved their darkness, but those who trusted and placed their faith in that light, they walk with God in light. They have true light inside of them. This is the second mention of the Lord's coming in the prophecy of Malachi. At the first, at first, if if you remember, uh, he was described as a refiner who will purify the sons of Levi. But here he's giving a title that suits him best. The son of of righteousness. And the light that he will bring will be, will be healing in his wings. The sun is used as an analogy of Jesus Christ. And you know, when you go to the beach, what's the first thing you want to do? Lay in the sun. The sun has healing properties inside of it. But also, if the sun gets too hot, and we know living in Bakersfield, it can burn us up. But it's fitting to refer to Christ as a sun. S-U-N, is it not? The sun is pure. No darkness can be found in the sun. The sun of God is pure. No darkness can be found in the sun. The sun never gets tired of shining upon the earth. The sun of God never gets tired of healing sinners. The sun in the sky is a shadow of the sun of righteousness and all of his glory. Jonathan Edwards even say that the sun is a type of Christ. For the believers who look at the sun, we are to see Christ in all of his glory, in all of his brilliance, in all of his majesty. The sun is a great star in our galaxy, but the sun of God's brilliance infinitely shines, outshines the sun. And we see references of Christ shining in the darkness throughout all of Scripture. We see many speaking of this day when, God, when the Son of God will rise and he will shine. Habakkuk saw an incredible vision of the Son of Righteousness rising, declaring his radiance is like the sunlight. 
He has rays flashing from his hand. And there is the hiding of his power. Habakkuk 3.4 The wise men asked, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Even when Christ was a baby, his, he was shining brighter than any other star. Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied the coming of the Son of Righteousness. It says in Luke chapter 1, 78 and 79, Because of the tender mercy of our God, thereby the sun rise shall visit us from on high. Thereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Peter, James, and John saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration and he was transfigured before him and his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. And that one day when we will all meet in the heavens, in the new heavens and the new earth, on that day, Revelation 21, 23 says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why wouldn't it need no sun or moon? For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. Malachi is pointing the faithful ones of Israel to a day when the sun of righteousness will rise above the types and shadows of the Old Testament age. The day when the darkness of the Old Testament will be done away with. Jesus Christ, the one who was promised in Genesis 3.15, will come and bring healing to those who are dead. Jesus Christ is the son of righteousness. And how fitting is it for him to be the son of righteousness because he is the only one who has ever lived that was righteous. But what does Christ do at his first coming? If he is the son of righteousness and he comes with his wings and he, and, he, and he heals us, what does he accomplish at his first coming? How does Christ shine light from his wings at his first advent? Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, takes on human flesh and lives a perfect life that we could not live. He completes the works of the law on our behalf. He satisfies the wrath of God on the cross and rises on the third day for our justification. In, in this, in, in, in Christ's person and work, and his, at his first advent, he brought healing, spiritual healing in his wings. The ray of light beams that come from the wings of Christ is spiritual healing. Christ did what all the Old Testament priests and sacrifices could not do. He did exactly what all those Old Testament types were pointing to. Christ, as our great high priest, presented to the Father, not a lame and sick version of himself, but a perfect, holy, and pure sacrifice. Christ, as the perfect sacrifice, doesn't temporarily cover, temporary cover our sins. He doesn't need to come year after year to please and satisfy the wrath of God. But as the book of Hebrews reminds us time and time and time again, he offered a once-for-all sacrifice. And as a result of Christ's active and passive obedience, Hebrews 10.12 tells us, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice of sins, what does he do? What does our great high priest do? What does this great Lamb of God do? He sat down at the right hand of God. 
What significance is that? Well, in the Old Testament, in the Old Temple, there was no, there was no seat for the, for the priest to sit down because his work was never done. When Christ sat down, everything was done. When Christ, the perfect high priest, offered himself to the Father as a sacrifice, his work was completed. And the Father vindicated the Son before the entire world by rising him from the dead. Seating him on high at the right hand of God. This is what Christ accomplished at his first coming. He came from heaven soaring like an eagle and brought redemption in his wings. All the types and all the shadows he brought in his wings and he completed them all. Christ healed our spiritual souls. He reconciled us to God. And in the fullness of time, he brought us to our knees in repentance and faith. He shined another light upon his elect by giving us the Holy Spirit. And now we eagerly wait for his return. But as I told you, there's a dual meaning in the Son of Righteousness who will bring healing in his wings. Christ at his first coming healed our spiritual souls. Christ at his second coming will bring healing to our bodies. 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, 21 to 22 says, For since death came through man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. When, when, when Paul says all will be made alive, he's not talking about just a spiritual made alive. He's talking about our bodies as well on the last day. We will be raised like Christ. We will be, we, our bodies will be like Christ. As he goes on and says in verse 49 of 1st, of 1st Corinthians 15, but just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so also we shall bear the likeness of the heavenly man. Amen. Everything that Adam lost is gained in Christ. Everything that we lose, that we lost in Adam, is gained by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Mind you, when we think about salvation, yes, think about how Christ comes and he and, and saves us from our sins. Think about Christ coming and, and, and gives us spiritual healing. But friends, if you stop there, then you are losing that diamond that's in the gospel. Because Christ raised from the, was raised from the dead. And since Christ has been raised from the dead, you will be raised from the dead as well. So what happens when Christ comes is the totality of our being, our soul and our body, is renewed, is, is made new. That's what Christ does. Yes, he takes care of our soul, but also he takes care of our bodies as well. But we have to ask now, how will we feel on that day when Christ comes for a second time? What type of emotion will we have? Well, when, when I thought Christ was coming, I was scared out of my boots. But what will it be like? But what will, what, it, what, it will, what will it be like when, when Christ comes for a second time? What will my emotion be like then? Verse 2 tells us, You shall go out leaping like cows from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. The idea is this. In the Old Testament, calves were kept in the stall to fatten them and ultimately to offer them up as a sacrifice, to slaughter them. We were the fattened calves who were awaiting to be slaughtered. But the Son of Righteousness came with healing in His wings to rescue us. Christ is a rescuer. Christ frees us from our stalls 
And we come out leaping with uncontrollable joy. That's what Christ does. That's the emotion that we will have. An uncontrollable feeling as we, as we gallop through the pastures because of what our Lord has done. Yes, at his first advent, he took care of our spiritual souls and he has come back for us. His promises remained true. Verse 3, And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Saints, there's only one way to take this. This is victory language. We will tread down over our enemies, over their ashes, with joy and delight. For the wicked, this day will be one of judgment and wrath. But for the righteous, this day will be one of victory and triumph. What a glorious God we serve. The light that was promised in Genesis 3.15 was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that light will soon come again. Come quickly, Lord, come quickly. Saints, be of good cheer this morning. The promises of God never change and never fail. The promised seed of Genesis 3.15 was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The light has come into the world and the healing in his wings covers a multitude of sins. Saints, if you have trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, Christ has now wrapped you in his wings like a hen wraps his chicks. And in his wings we have gained an eternal inheritance. In Christ, we have gained access to God. In Christ, we have His Spirit. In Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians, have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. In Christ, we have victory. In Christ, we have triumph. In Christ, we have overcome death. As we close the prophecy of Malachi, how does God instruct the faithful and wicked? And what will God say to Israel before 400 years of silence. As you, as you know, this right here, this page, this white page represents 400 years of nothing. God was speaking to no prophet. No revelation was given. What does he give, what does he give to, this, to, to the remnant of Israel, but also to these, to these wicked men of Israel? The last three verses of, of the chapter says that, say this. Remember the law of my servant Moses. The statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Least I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's the end of the Old Testament. God reminds Israel to keep the law that he established with them during the time of Moses. And be on the lookout for one who is soon to come in the spirit of Elijah. And he will come and prepare the hearts of men. Friends, that is of great use for us as well. As we now wait the second coming of Christ, what we do now is we wait patiently. We look toward Christ and what, he, and what God has revealed uh, through the prophets in the Old Testament and New and we keep his law dear to us. We delight in his law day and night. What's, what's a proper way to end our series in the book of Malachi? How should we end the last book of the Old Testament? 
I think it's only fitting that we end the prophecy of Malachi with who the prophecy points forward to. John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, for he comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. For from the fullness we have received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but glory be to God, he has made himself known. Let's stand.